My name is Rob. Um, it's a pleasure, it's a blessing, it's a huge privilege for me to spend this time with you guys. I have been praying about this weekend and actually the service and uh, just really looking forward to diving into God's Word. Have you ever had a, not just a lousy day, but truly a lousy day? Oh yeah. The days where, I mean I know we all know what it is, right? We don't want anything else to come onto our desk. Don't want to deal with anything else. Stop. I've had enough. I'm done. This is lousy. Everything that's gone bad will go bad and has gone bad. I just don't want to deal with it anymore. I want to find a hole. I want to crawl in it. And that's how I want to end these days. Fair? All right. So we've all had those days. We all can picture that for what it is. Now, have you ever been in one of those attitudes, those moods, those days, and then you meet somebody that is really going through something tough? And you're like, dang it, Rob. They've got maybe a child with cancer. A spouse, maybe. Something like that. And you're just like, man, my perspective's sure off. <clears throat> and even worse than that, just think of it. And then you watch how they live it. And they're so focused. Gosh darn it. And how they carry it out and their focus. And they do the whole way through praising God. And I'm in complaining, wanting to crawl in my hole. That was more dramatic than what I was thinking. <clears throat> Isn't perspective interesting? <laughs> Love you. The Bible doesn't tell us we're not going to have problems. It doesn't tell us we're not going to have difficulties. In fact, it tells us that we will. It says we're going to have them for a purpose. It says that it wants to teach us something. In fact, it says it wants to, to improve us, to make us perfect, in fact. And James, the real thing about trials and difficulties is how do we respond? Where do we turn? It's a lesson I would love to talk with you about. In reality, we don't appreciate all the things God does for us. Let's just be honest. I personally have a hard time remembering thanking Him for our food, and that's a part of our culture. Have you ever had your air conditioning go out? When it's hot? And then it comes back on, all of a sudden you're like, thank you for the AC. Oh, yeah. But the, the day before it went out, were you thankful for it? No, you just ho hum. Have you ever had your car battery die? The day before, were you thankful for it? Isn't it interesting? We don't appreciate the blessings of God, and oftentimes it takes the blessing being removed before we even realize we have a blessing. Oftentimes the very things we're complaining about are the blessings. And then somehow God gives us these sufferings, these difficulties to even show us context of what blessings are. It's just a dynamic thing. Where do we turn? How do we respond to difficulties? So easy to complain. It's so easy to whine. It reminds me of a story. A mom with their young son. And the young son's probably being a little fussy. So they're walking, an old gentleman sees this happening and offers the young little boy an orange. Mom stops. Now what do you tell the nice old man? Little boy looks at his orange, hands it back to the man, says, uh, peel it? 
That's just kind of our response. And so it's hard to be faithful. It's hard to keep it in perspective. We just kind of want it all about us. We don't really care about other things. But how does it affect me? So we're going to look at a story today. And I can't help think that the story we're going to look at is intended more than just a story. It's a real story. It's a story of Jesus, but it's also considered a parable. Oftentimes, Jesus would take a make, made-up story to use it as an illustration. A parable is simply an earthly story, an earthly illustration that has a deeper spiritual heavenly meaning. This is, so happens to be a real story that also then we can reflect and get a deeper spiritual meaning to. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be Luke chapter 17. Start at verse 11. We're going to go through verse 19. John was telling me, he's like, oh, you're going to love teaching here. You can see everyone's face. So different. In our old church, there was blind spots. You just had to pretend like you're looking and you really couldn't see. It's so cool. It's so bright in here. All right. Luke 17, let's start in verse 11. While he, this is Jesus, was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Jesus Christ is on his way walking towards Jerusalem. Now this is the last part of his ministry. He is on a trip. He is crisscrossing all over Israel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, doing miracles, he's doing healings, casting out demons, showing compassion and mercy and tenderness, all the stuff Jesus did, while speaking firmly about judgment and hell, really giving the full counsel of God to awaken the people of Israel that they need to turn their eyes to him. These were the final months of Jesus' life here on earth. He's not taking a direct route. He's taking a month, hitting these small types of villages along the way, To give them the good news. He will make his final approach into Jerusalem in chapter 19. And that's where the trial and everything will begin. But here he is passing by Samaria. Verse 12. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. We can learn something here historically by the phrase, stood at a distance. It indicates that this disease they called leprosy was real. There was other skin issues that were recorded in the Bible that would fall under the word lepus. But they were not removed from society. Leopards were, we'll cover that. Leopards were outcast. They were aliens. They're miserable people. And I want to tell you a little bit about leprosy because I think it's important for some context. I'll try not to go into unnecessary detail, but I am going to go into detail. The medical history on leprosy is abundant. It's caused by a bacteria. This bacteria attacks the nerves. It attacks the skin, ultimately sedating and numbing the body so the limbs feel nothing. At that point, the potential for serious injury is grand. It starts with a white, pink patch of skin, usually on our brow, spreads to the nose, to the cheeks, to the ears, the chin, finally engulfing the whole head. Start spreading in all directions. The eyebrows start to disappear. Spongious, tumorous, swelling growths on the face and then begin to send all over the body. <clears throat> I have a picture of a, it's a historical picture. It's the, le- the mildest picture I could find. I want to show you of a head. If you do not want to look, I'm just going to put it up for a few seconds. It's, 
it's mild, but I do think the context is good. So when I say one, two, three, we'll put it up. If you don't want to look, it'll just be up for a second. We've done it in the other two services, it's gone all right. One, two, three. The bacteria, or the skin loses its original color, becomes thick, glossy, scaly, especially around the ears and the eyes. Begins to bunch with deep furrows, swelling in the face. You can turn that off. And the affected individual kind of begins to resemble like a lion. The bacteria destroys the eyes, causing blindness. It penetrates the tree teeth so they fall out. Penetrates all the bodily organs, affects the larynx, so that one ends up with just a weak, at best, raspy voice. Kind of with a grating quality to it. Now, during Jesus' ministry, there are many healings, there's many miracles, there's many casting out demons, multiple times of teaching and ministry, and then when he moved around with his disciples and apostles. In fact, there's no way to calculate the number of miracles. Even the New Testament testifies to this fact. It says that the things that he said and the things that he did could not be recorded in the books of the world. All the miracles recorded, at least in Luke, were performed... Miracles of healing were performed on one individual except one case when he healed the two blind men. All the rest were one individual, but here is a miracle that involves ten. Not one, not two, but ten. Ten people with the most terrible, horrific disease. Here we're going to see an amazing miracle. A simultaneous instant healing of ten men. It's an ancient disease. Medical historians believe that this disease originated in uh, Egypt because it was found in the earliest mummies. So here's Jesus crisscrossing through the land, entering into this village. Ten leprous men set aside outside the village. Verse 13, and they raise their voice saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It's interesting, some of the original language here, Master. Out of all the words these leopards, outcasts, could have chosen, in the Greek, this is a word that's only used by Luke, and it's only used by Luke by, from people who are followers of Christ. This is a word with some weight. It's a word that reflects honor. It's a, it's a word that speaks to somebody of notable authority, notable power, even miraculous power. These men are borrowing a word that affirms they recognize the authority and the power of Jesus. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. This was their only hope. These boys were backed up in a corner. This was their only chance. They had no way out. They're in a dilemma. No cures. No solutions. Their faith might have been young. It might have been uh, weak. It might have been meager. But it was there. They're desperate men. Think about it. What other options do they have? And they cry out, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, an interesting phrase too. It's a phrase that recognizes one's pitiful condition. A condition where you're unable to solve your own problem. It's a dilemma. You have nothing to do on your own and you now must depend on somebody else. Have mercy on us. Show me pity while showing me your power. It's an acknowledgement, it's a confession. You are greater than I. You have power to deal with my sickness. Dr. Paul Brand, 
is a modern world-renowned expert on leprosy. And he gives us some wonderful insight and a modern kind of up-to-date look. <laughs> Nowadays it's called the Hansen's disease. HD is the abbreviation how they refer to it. And yeah, it's, it's cruel. Not cruel in the ways other d diseases are. As I mentioned, it primarily acts as an anesthetic. Numbing the pain cells of the hands, the feet, the nose, all your appendages. You might be thinking, well, I mean, numb's not bad. If you're going to have a horrible disease, might as well not feel the pain. With HD, the numbing quality is precisely the reason it's so horrific. Thousands of years ago, people thought this disease caused the ulcer on the hands and the feet and the face, which eventually led to the, the rotting flesh and all the gross stuff associated. But mainly through Dr. Brand's research, it was established that in 99% of the cases of HD or leprosy, that the, the, the actual leprosy only numbed the extremities, extremities and the destruction follows solely because the warning system of pain is basically gone. So people literally with this disease end up destroying their own limbs. One last picture I want to show you. You don't have to look if you don't want, but I do want to paint the picture of the condition these people are in crying out. And this is going to be a picture of hands. If you don't want to look, it'll just be up for a few seconds. We'll take it out. Ready? Good enough? Take it down. So how does the decay happen? And here I want to read an expert uh, or an excerpt of um, the doctor's website. In a village of Africa and Asia, a person with HD has been known to reach directly into charcoal fires to retrieve a dropped potato. Nothing in his body tells him not to. Patients at Brand, Brand's Hospital in India would work all day gripping a shovel with a protruding nail or extinguish a burning wick with their bare hands, or walk on splintered glass. Watching them, Brand began to formulate his radical theory that HD was chiefly anesthetic and only indirectly a destroyer. On one occasion, he tried to open a door of a little storeroom, but a rusty padlock would not yield. A patient, an undersized, malnourished, 10-year-old, approached him smiling, Doctor, let me try. As the boy offered and reached for the key, with one quick jerk of his hand, he turned the key in the rusty lock. Brand was dumbfounded. How could this young, uh, weak youngster show more strength than I? And his eyes caught the telltale truth. Was that a drop of blood on the floor? It, upon examining the boy's finger, Brand discovered the act of turning the t key that he gashed the finger open to the bone. Skin, fat, and joint were all exposed, yet the boy was completely unaware. The daily routines of life grinds away at the HD patient's hands and feet. No warning system alerts him. If an ankle is turned, tearing a tendon and muscle, he just adjusts his walk and walks crooked. And so the sad story goes. Horrific disease. A man named Stanley Stein went blind because another quirk of HD. Each morning he would wash his face with a hot washcloth. Neither his hands or his face were sensitive enough to the temperature to, the, uh, to warn him that he was using scalding water, gradually destroying his eyes, and that's how it worked. I do that because I want to paint the picture of the horrific condition physically these people were in. Literally numb. Not just like numb, but n I mean they couldn't feel it. Just, you, just wearing yourself back, down. The whole trend in our society and culture of uh, zombies. I don't, there's a lot of movies and stuff being made on zombies. The zombie character is based upon the leper. Literally, just kind of the whole movement, the look. Disease, on average, is carried for 10 to 30 years. 
Victims normally dying from a low resistance or other disease or infection. Can easily be transmitted by simply breathing. Be uh, transmitted by bodily contact. Or even contact with the clothes that a leper wore. The good news is in 1982, we've had an effective treatment for the bacteria. They still figured today, in two, well, 2012, that there's 250,000 people in the world still with leprosy, though. Over the last 20 years, over 20 million people were inf- have been infected by it. So the disease is still with us. So I say that, get back to the story, these men stood afar. They raised their voices, their feeble, affected larynx voices trying to raise them in a strange, weak, frail, raspy way. Jesus, with their limbs not so intact, have mercy on us. These guys are in bad shape. They need something. They're desperate. Verse 14, Jesus, it says, When Jesus saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourself to the priest. Now, in studying this, I, I was reading this thing, and gosh, that, that is a strange way to respond. Jesus, help us. I mean, I'm picturing this thing, thing and then you just go, go, show yourself to the priest. Why didn't you say, just be healed? He's doing a couple of things here. First, he's testing their faith. Even though their faith, as I said, might have been young, it might have been meager, immature, it's a good test. But probably more importantly, he's affirming the viability of the divine law. He knew the Old Testament law, and he is upholding the law that said, go show yourself to the priest. That's exactly what he did in chapter 5, verses 14, when he cured that leper. Go show yourself to the priest. In the Old Testament, there was a real distinct protocol. If you want to go to Leviticus 13 and 14, you can read about it. I mean in detail protocol of what the priests were due to do to determine if you had leprosy. Literally, what, how you handle the clothes, how you did the inspections, the length of days, the sacrifices, how you clean the house, what you burned, what you didn't burn. I mean, it, went, it goes on and on and on. So, now, th- traditionally, the, the priests were in charge of doing the inspection and then sending people out. If you were, you know, started showing the signs of it, they would inspect you and send you out. So, now, Jesus is telling these people, they've already seen the priest. They've already been sent out of the village. And now Jesus is saying, help us, self, have mercy on us, master. Oh, go see the priest. This would have taken some serious gumption for these people to get up and start heading to the priest. It was obvious. They've already been kicked out. They've already been examined and verified by the priest to get out of town. So what he's asking them is, is no small request. It would have been huge to have somebody certified that they were clean from leprosy. Huge. And this would have been the news of all news. Unheard of. Ten? Go show yourself to the priest. I guess that's what desperation will do to you. They knew that if they were going to be healed, it would have to be verified. They, they would have known the Old Testament. In Leviticus, I told you, 13 and 14. It's in Numbers 5, Numbers 12, 2 Kings 7. Great detail. Since the priests were responsible for the law of God and applying the law of God, and since this was laid out in the law of God, is one of the unique things that if you had leprosy or something that looked like leprosy, you had to go to the priest. They were the authority, not the doctors, not anything else, but the priests were the authority on this one disease to determine exactly what you had. 
So physically, that's our physical picture. These guys, I think we got it. Horrible. Walking dead. Now there is a, a social aspect of it too that we've kind of mentioned too. If it was discovered by the priest that you had this infectious disease, you were removed from all society. All society. Not just losing kind of your Facebook friends. Not just having a rip, ripple in your family. Not moving and having to reestablish yourself. You were removed. Removed from all society. Period. There wasn't an adjustment period. It wasn't a two-week notification. It's grandkids. It's kids. It's mom and dad. Everyone. Tough. The only people you could associate with were the other miserable people with the same condition as you. Physically, horrendous. Socially, horrible. And it gets worse. Spiritually, at that time, the people had an idea that this sickness was a result of sin. And this was something that, because of something you did, something that you were doing against God, that this was divine judgment. So now you're a walking example of God's divine judgment against sin. Physically, you're just deteriorating. Socially, you are outcast to the nth degree. And spiritually, you're being punished by God. You're an alien, just left with other miserable people. Cursed by God and cursed by man. It had the potential back in those days wiping out entire populations. So God laid out these prescriptions, right? It says in the Bible, command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, and they took it to the extreme. They put them out. It's too dangerous to have those people around the healthy people. God did use in less than a handful of cases leprosy as a punishment in the Old Testament. Naaman was a leper by divine punishment. Uzziah was a leper by divine punishment. Lepers were common. Luke 4.27 says there's many lepers in the day of Elijah and Elijah. And obviously there's many lepers in the day of Jesus. Physically, religiously, socially defiled in every way. No family, no jobs, no friends, no worship, no hope. Walking illustration of sin. Walking illustration of God's divine judgment. Horrific life. Now on a side note, I just want to point out something too. And I love these ironies in scripture. Christ was so smart. So, the, the, the priest had to validate the healing. Were the priests for or against Jesus in this time? Oh, yeah. They did not think it was cute what he was doing. Getting these followers, people to listen to him, speaking against them, correcting them. So, what, if Jesus is going to heal these ten people and send them where? Oh, hey, priest, you healed us. What, are, what, what, are, what, what is the priest going to have to do? Validate they've been. Which validates that... Jesus is, oh my goodness, for a minimum of eight days, these guys would have to stand testimony to the man they don't like. In fact, they want to, they're going to end up paying somebody to, to, to entrap him so they can kill him. That's how much they don't like him. But for eight days, they're going to have to testify, yep, nope, these guys are clean. They've been healed. Off the books, this is, we can't explain it, but it's true. We're going to sign off on it and witness to the deity of Jesus Christ. Just a side note, I think it's so 
Interesting. The testimony of the power of God. Verse 14, B, the second part of it there. And as they were going, they were cleansed. One of the things that stunned me about this story is the understatement of all this. I just think it's so easy to read through and be like, oh, that's a neat story. I mean, it seems like you would expect something like the skies grew black and it began to thunder and and bolts of lightning hit and the angels sang and the earth might have shook. And Jesus said, be healed. But it's interesting, none of that, no hoopla, there's no fanfare. They just start walking and they're made new. It says they're healed. Now, nonetheless, this miracle must have been astounding. I mean, I don't know how it happens when they are walking. I don't know how far they walked. I don't know if they saw it on themselves first or one of the nine next to them thinking, dude, you're, you're healed. Wait, so am I. I don't know if they're walking and, and you know, they're, they're expecting people to start shouting out at them, unclean, unclean, and it didn't happen, and then they figured it out. It must have been amazing. And it says they were cleaned In the Greek, it means there is nothing left. I love the Greek. From top to bottom, from inside out, it was gone. These folks were made whole. How strange of an experience it must have been. As they walked in obedience to his commandment, they feel the gradual creeping sense of soundness returning to their bodies. How much more joyful and confident each step must have been been to take as health returned and inserts itself. The very thought and their obedience to his word affected the cure. He willed it, and as they walked in obedience to his word, it's done. These ten all started towards the priest. All alike. All alike, these ten received the blessing and were healed. But then the commonality was broken. Verse 15, now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, says he turned back. One of them came back from the brief moment of going in the direction of the priest, wherever the priest was. He stopped in his tracks. He spun around with joy, full of amazement, full of wonder. I'm sure trying to process, what does this all mean? Thinking of all the implications, going back to his family, seeing his kids Probably unrecognizable, bigger. His friends, his life, probably excited to even go back to work. But he saw more than that, this one man. He understood the real implications of what happened here. He knew that he's been in the presence of God. He wanted more than physical healing now. He wanted to embrace the full potential of getting from God what he knew he really needed. His heart was longing for a relationship with the divine healer. He was no longer satisfied with physical healing. Not content. He understood the reality of his alienation and he needed reconciliation with God. So he comes back and he does three things. It says in the middle of verse 15, glorifying God with a loud voice. Think about it. This is a voice that now is able to do something that has not been able to do more than likely for years. No more squeaky, raspy, leprosy-infected larynx. Now he could cry out with new vocal cords. Literally, the Greek again says, phone megalos, a big, loud voice, glorifying God 
Luke's way of expressing the great emotion. This is an outburst coming back on the top of his lungs. He knew where the power had come from. He knew who had healed him. He knew Jesus was more than a mere man. What a miracle. This awful disease is cured. Verse 16a. And he fell on his face at his feet. He knew what it was. He turned around. He came. He recognized him. God for who he was in Jesus. And then he falls on his face and begins to worship him. They knew, Jews, Samaritans, they all knew that only God was to be worshipped like this, and this man decides to worship him like that. It goes on and says, giving him thanks, knowing that it was God in Jesus that given him this miracle. He receives his blessing, and he, and he returns it with praise and worship. Couldn't restrain his posture. His posture admits, I want a relationship with you. I want everything you've got to give. It's a man who knows he's in the presence of God. The end of verse 16, it says, and he was a Samaritan. Interesting fact. From the viewpoint of a Jew, the Samaritan would have been the last man to be healed. The Jews as an understatement, did not like the Samaritans. They were the worst, worse than the Gentiles, because the Samaritans were Jewish people that broke the bloodline and married Gentiles. Ooh. In fact, in their culture, if you were to meet with a Samaritan, you would be unclean and unworthy for sacrifice in the temple. I mean, just incredible. The only reason in this culture that, that, that a, a Jew would be with a Samaritan and it'd be okay is once you were a leper, you'd be thrown in the same camp because at that point, you're the living dead. It don't matter. It neutralizes it. And then Jesus says to him in verse 17, Jesus answered and said, he's going to give us three rhetorical questions that drive home an important point of people's ingratitude and indifference. And Jesus said, were there not ten cleansed? And by the way, the structure of that sentence requires, expects a positive answer. Were there not ten cleansed? Were there ten? Where are they? He asked another rhetorical question. But the nine? Where are they? They ought to be here. Where are they? There's no answer, presumably. They're still on their way to the priest. We could presume that they don't have any interest in Jesus anymore. They kind of got what they wanted out of him. We can presume that, well, in essence, they were shallow. They were superficial. Doesn't appear they have a desire to worship. No desire to glorify him or to thank him. And unfortunately, like we see in the Bible so often with the Jews, they don't see him as God. They don't fall down and give to him what we only give to God, and that's our worship and praise. It appears they have no sense of remorse, no sense of desperation. They weren't looking for a Savior from sin. Not our one man, not our boy. He knew he needed a Savior. This guy fully knew it. He knew he came face to face with God. His soul's traumatized. He knew he's a sinner. God showed most mercy on him, compassion and kindness. 
processing all the implications of what just happened, the others must have just had hard hearts. They sought nothing more from Jesus. And Jesus asked him a third question. Was no one, verse 18, was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? No one came back but this man of a different race? It's like John 1.11. He came unto his own, his own received him not. This word foreigner, it's written on the outer walls of the temple in Israel. Forbidding foreigners to access the temple precincts. Right, The, the areas that they allowed for the Jews were the precincts, and then they had a separate court for the Gentiles. But the Gentiles or Samaritans could not go beyond that. And here's this man, he's a foreigner. He's on the outside of the covenant, according to the Jews. Right, He's outside the people of God, outside the promise, the adoption. He's a Samaritan. He can't go into the forbidden inner courts of their temple, but instead here he walks straight face to face with God himself and goes into his own holies of holies. Went straight before the Holy One to worship in humility and joy. And I sit here and think about this story. At first it seems so great, their healing of leprosy. My, my gosh, they've been made clean. And I get to this part of the story and I think, my gosh, what are you guys doing? You missed everything. And they walk away blind and dead to their cold religion. They have no more interest in Jesus. In verse 19, the story reaches a wonderful end. And he said to them, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Or more accurately, your faith has saved you. He says, rise up. Go your way. Fulfill the law. Go back to the priest now. Your faith, your different faith, the greater faith has saved you. Many translations, including NASB, says has made you well. The Greek word is very much more specific than that. And we probably could have translated it better in English. Everyone was made well. All ten were made well. That's not the, define, the definitive ending to the story. The, the verb used here is not for healed, which was used in verse 15 early in the story. The word here is not the word for cleansed, which was used in verse 14 of the story. The word here is sozo, which is the word for salvation. They were saved. He was saved. It's obvious that this man came back repentantly worshipfully, and the Lord saved his soul and gave him salvation. The big point of the story is Jesus Christ is Lord. The Samaritan knew that God offers more than physical healing or physical blessings. That wasn't the real issue in his life. That was just a temporal detail. He returns not just to give thanks for the physical healing, but he knew that he needed to seek something greater than that for his soul. He needed salvation. And how do we know that? Because it's exactly what Jesus gave to him. That's the point. That is the big picture. This isn't a story of an individual. In essence, it's a, it's a parable. We can look at the nine and see the general response, the general attitude of the world, then and now how people respond to this, the message of, of Christ. This is the general attitude of the Jews, and it's the general attitude, period, towards Jesus. 
right? Give us healing, give us food, deliver us from demons, do miracles, but don't expect us to worship you. Don't expect our praise, our adoration, our thanks. Don't expect me to honor you as Christ. Oh, I want to thank God. We hear that all the time. I want to thank God. You don't hear, I want to thank Jesus Christ. Think about the, parab- the, 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 the spiritual connection in the parable. Earthly story, spiritual meaning. Lepers have a disease. Life-threatening disease that causes isolation. Outcast, remnant, removed, unapproachable. They can't approach, they can't be approached either way. Spiritually, us as sinners... have a disease, we're separated, can't approach, unapproachable, we're in a bad shape. Leprosy, what caused them to be separated? The law. It said it very clear what to do with a leper. What causes us as sinners to be separated? The law. Our condition before God Almighty, pure and just, God Almighty is not good without Christ. What prevented the lepers from seeking help or, or doing anything? The law. They were isolated. And who came to them? Jesus. Their bodies were deteriorating. Their conditioning worsening. Sinners aren't near to God. They're far off. Sinners can't and will not draw near to God on their own. Right? What keeps them at that distance? The law. The law shuts us out. The law sets forth the conduct of the lepers also. The law says when you pass by one, pass on the other side and shout out, unclean, unclean, to let yourself know and everyone else know around. Sin puts us in an awful position, and they were in this awful position, unapproachable position. These men living out, shut out lives, but I am beyond grateful, grateful, grateful this morning. That where the law says men cannot go, Jesus goes. But the law declares off limits, Jesus barges in. When the law tells us, pass on the other side, Jesus makes it a point to contact us. It gives depth when the Bible says, oh, Jesus came to save sinners. These men were in an unapproachable position. He went this way on purpose. There's no question. He knew the awful position sin put them in or puts us in. And Jesus is able to reach and to save us. When our families unfortunately can't help, when our friends unfortunately can't help, even doctors or lawyers, unfortunately they can't help, oftentimes even the church, Jesus can. And while we stand far off from him, he does not stand far off from us. When they couldn't get to Jesus, Jesus got to them. The Samaritan's a picture of the outcast, the remnant, the few but it's an outcast who believed. Regardless if it's a Samaritan, regardless if it was a tax collector, a sinner, the riffraff, the scum, the thugs, the lowlifes, the prostitutes, 
Yep, all those who surrounded Jesus and whom he said he'd come to call the sinners, not the righteous. A lot of people today and back then, they heard the message. A lot of people enjoy the benefits of Jesus' power. They bask in the wonders of his teaching and his miracles, but only a few come. Only a few fall on their feet and glorify him, worship him, humble themselves, and offer thanks. In this story, the majority were takers. Only a small group, well, one, gave thanks and worshiped. The others, well, they're content fixing up their lives a little bit. Kind of superficial, a little temporal. But only a small group wanted to change their soul, transform their hearts, and that's true today. I don't know how this man on his way to the priest came to the conclusion I would have loved to watch that transformation of that body. I don't know what happened, but somehow he realized what happened. He beelined back to the feet of Jesus. And I don't want to be so hard on the other nine. It's probably was a long time since they felt the touch of their wives, been able to kiss their children. I mean, let's face it. Well, we're healed. Let's just keep doing this. This is not, this is not so bad. But on the same token, the one that came back, I don't question the fact that he loved his wife. I don't question the fact that he loved his children and friends and, and his, his church and he wanted to get back. But there was a huge shift. There was a priority shift, a perspective shift. At that point, he put Jesus where? On the throne, number one. Well, the others, they benefited. And yeah, ten were healed. Go back with me 30 minutes ago. How amazing was that when they were healed? But now, the real miracle here is one man was saved. We see that miracle going on all the time. How do we respond when we have the blessings or the trials of God dumped on us? Boy, they're easy to snatch, clutch onto, and run. Look at me now, I'm doing good. He says, no, no, you turn around, both with the good and the bad, and we put them back at the feet of Jesus and say, all glory be to you. And I sit here and think of his church. Our church, if you've been with us just for the last couple of months, the hand of God is moving in our church. This church is being blessed abundantly. Our VBS was fantastic. Last Wednesday night, if you have kids in 180, Anthony is doing a fantastic job. Support that ministry. It is critical. I came home, um, I was late, and I'm not really a part of it, but I just get a watch from a distance. It's fun. And they're at our house, and I, I'm listening to this discussion like the last 10 minutes. And I've got, I don't know how many years I've been doing youth ministry. I've got to be over 10 now. And it was probably the most divine discussion. I think, I, I kid you not, I'm not trying to sell you, I've ever heard. These kids were, they had them debating about, is it ever okay to sin and talking about lying? It was just, it was amazing. What about when Rahab hid the people to save them from being killed? I mean, it was, I could not believe it. I'm sitting here thinking, our church is being blessed. Our prayer ministry is what, grown three, four hundred percent? We're meeting twice a week? You see breakfast last week going out the front door? Men's breakfast? I mean, this building? And what do we do with it? What is our response? Think, oh, we're, we're, we're through the hard times. We've, and I'm not saying we, didn't, we, we will not go through hard times again. We went through our hard times as a church. There's no doubt. I'm not saying we're in the clear at all that. But what do we do with either one? Think, wow, it's so nice now. I'm just kind of forget. We don't think about our AC working anymore. Or do we turn back and beeline to the feet of Jesus? 
Because the miracle of salvation is the real miracle, and that's why we're a church that's awkwardly, well, faithfully bent on teaching the Word of God. Because that's the New Testament church miracle. That's the one man saved. He'll bless us and continue to bless us. Are we going to be faithful to return to the feet of Jesus? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, We thank you for your trials and your difficulties, for testing us, growing us. We trust in your word that you want to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that we can be people prepared to do faithfully your work. Thank you for your son, that your plan was so great, sending him to earth, that we have a savior that understands our frailties and our temptations. Lord, that you seek us when we can't seek you. You have mercy on us. Lord, let us be a a people that don't take for granted your blessings. People that come to the feet of Jesus with loud voices glorifying you. Lord, people that are willing to fall flat on our face and worship you. Let us be a people that are willing to just say simply, thank you. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room, all the families connected, the marriages, all the things that are going to be going on this week. Lord, let your hand be upon them. Lord, let us be a light, the glory of who you are. Bring us all back here again next week safe. Lord, it's in your son's very precious name we all say, Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful week, and thank you so much. Thank you.